think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 108 of The Boys Before Pants, the 109th episode, though I guess now that Etienne has screwed our numbers up, it could be episode 108.5, the 109.5 episode, <laughs> uh, but I think we'll stick with the uh, the original numbering scheme, uh, just for the sake of all of our sanities. I'm Laurent Carbonet. I'm Mason Rainville. Oh, so it's there, finally, Jesus. <laughs> this is really killing me with the dead air there. Um, so it's been a bit busy couple of weeks since, uh, we last recorded, which I guess was about a month ago now, actually. Um, we've obviously had the federal budget, uh, this past week. Uh, Aaron O'Toole finally released his, uh, his Don't say plan finally. It was, that was not too not bad mistaken. in terms of timeline. The liberals were trying to give the conservative shit well, for not okay. releasing yeah. the climate plan when it had been two years since they'd released the budget. Like, settle down, folks. The guy's been in, in, uh, there, in the yeah, rule we, for like, what, nine months? Yeah, we can we can come around to the politics of, of when you put out an environmental plan uh, at that point. And also, we are in the the throes of a deadly third wave of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, that continues to rage uh, relatively unabated uh, in, in many parts of the country, Ontario especially. Um, and there has certainly been some kerfuffle as uh, Doug Ford uh, bravely took responsibility and immediately proceeded to say, but also this is all Justin Trudeau's fault for not closing the borders. And we will uh, examine some of that uh, at the la- the back third of this episode. So those are the things we kind of want to touch on today. Uh, beginning with the budget. Etienne, um, I, I always give you the, the first word. And uh, do you want to do you want to launch into the budget here? Do, do I always get first word? I'm, I'm not sure if that's a... Uh, Largely, because I do the setup and don't have time to... Followed. Um, yeah, usually what happens is I start and then like I don't have time to think about what I want to say, <laughs> so I just let you like go first while I formulate something after doing my my entry spiel. I actually just wasn't listening to you and was zoned out, so I just am not prepared to speak with this. At so all. neither of us. No, are, no, I'm just well, hopefully you you spun your wheels enough at this point to uh, so, come up with something. So budget 2021, the long-awaited um, budget following uh, budget 2019. Um, there was no 2020 budget because it happened in, uh, or it, w- it was set to happen uh, in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, and we've been sort of running ad hoc since then. Um, yes, also, combination of special warrants and uh, just uh, voted legislation. Yeah, and there have been some meal. interesting pieces. Uh, one one thing I'm just confused about is like the liberals recently put out a spending bill for like uh, largely FPT money, uh, federal, provincial, territorial money. Um, but they didn't just wait like two weeks to just make it part of budget. So it's its own bill, which hasn't really progressed through Parliament at all. Um, so an incredibly strange choice instead of just rolling it into the BIA. I have no idea what happens in liberal mind in the uh, liberal House leader's office in terms of like legislative agenda um, because they seem really bad at it and it largely makes no sense. I, I do wonder if those positions are just vacant most of the time. Um, nonetheless, on to budget 2021, which is Christia Freeland, uh, Canada's first female uh, finance minister's um, first budget. Um, and it's a pretty significant budget. Um, the government, I mean, the tension throughout COVID time was when you make the pivot in terms of messaging um, from this is about COVID mitigation and immediate response into the COVID recovery frame. Um, and there were several false starts. I remember when people were talking about the pivot to recovery in like September of last year, um, which turns out 
wall that <laughs> wasn't a yes. thing at all. Um, yes. In fact, they they set up a sort of an industry, I think it was called the Industry Strategy Council, um, to come up with like recommendations to report out in about September out of ISED um, around that time. And that has you know, quickly been forgotten as the game has very much changed since then. Um, so nonetheless, um, we have vaccinations. We have sort of a notional timeline in the horizon of summer 2021 when a lot of people are looking to get or anticipating being vaccinated and sort of expect that maybe come September 21, uh, September 2021, we'll sort of turn a new leaf and launch full force into the covid recovery phase of things so that's sort of the the framing the layout um the background the political context for this budget yes um the first thing i would say is that it's a lengthy budget it's i mean the pdf shows up as 725 pages um yes i don't know if that's a record i suspect it is a record um, it is a, the, there's a bit of, tr like, I don't want to say trickery here, but uh, it is inflated somewhat by having all the annexes in the same document. Yes. Typically what happens is you have one document that is the budget plan, and then you have separate little booklets for like the supplementary annexes. The, tax the, changes uh, are usually. Tax expenditures a, yeah. specifically. Yeah. Uh, their own thing. So having it all rolled into one doc, it's sort of like, uh, how, um the lord of the rings omnibus edition has all of like the appendices about like palantirs getting lost in the ocean uh and stuff uh rolled into it but like really it's the first like you know four-fifths of it that are uh, the actual book though in this case it's really like literally half the the budget document is um is append is annexes uh, I, I did joke when we uh when i was looking through it uh the first time around that it was the game of thrones budget and that it was uh, 700 plus pages long and you shouldn't get too attached to anything because the good chances are it'll get killed off if they ever end up writing a sequel. Um, but yes, that was my, my witticism for the lockup room. So let, let me let me just finish a, the, the political framing and then we can talk about the, sub Go ahead. the substance of the budget. Um, so in the lead up to this budget, there have been a lot of conversation about whether or not this would be used as a flashpoint to trigger an election. Um, some people <laughs> thought somehow... More innocent times. <laughs> <laughs> some people were of the view that somehow the liberals would um, walk a very fine rope and somehow make this budget a poison pill to both the conservative, the bloc, and the NDP. Um, how you would achieve that when, you know, the NDP have largely committed to voting for it almost no matter what. Um, I don't know. There were suggestions that it would, like, include massive fossil fuel. Uh, the, and when I say suggestions, I mean, like, um, unfounded Twitter speculation. Um, that they would the best kind of Twitter speculation. simultaneously include, like, massive fossil fuel investments um, Which and did. a universal basic income. Which, which is like oh. well they sort of did that by putting billions of dollars towards carbon capture and storage research and also 30 billion dollars towards the child care plan so i that is stretching um a lot of definitions i think and i'm not sure anyone well, no, will characterize just, things in that way uh well no but in terms of like the the direction of things like obviously a uh, child care is not a universal basic income but in terms of a large new social program Yes, as but, well as more fossil fuel subsidies. But is, uh, neither of those 
like the NDP aren't vehemently anti carbon capture and storage. Um, to my knowledge, I mean, you know, there's a lot in, of skepticism. In, I would enlighten say. me if if the party has a different formal position. Um, but needless to say, there was no poison pill. It was a good faith liberal budget, let's say, um, in part because no one... good faith liberal budget says they can. No, one... <laughs> <laughs> that's the headline to take away here. <laughs> um, in part because no one wants election right now. Um, yes. I think we can optimistically move the election timeline out now to probably September or so. Though this is an interesting question in terms of the political context, which is that like one of the things I. I notice while reading this thing was that like reading it you wouldn't think there was a pandemic going on so very clearly when they were drafting this budget i do think they thought this was going to be an election triggering budget for them right like even no. if they weren't like this this would have been a plan they had in place over the last several months <clears throat> when i think we all thought we were looking at a june election let, let me just right like, let me just clarify one point there i don't think they thought it would be an election triggering budget um but i do think it needed to be an election ready budget that, yeah and like an election a budget they could run on in an election yeah budget. and no no matter yeah. if the election is you know next sure week yeah yeah or to, in to be September, clear I, I didn't yeah it's going to be i don't a mean budget that basically represents the liberal platform going forward yes right yeah 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 to be clear i i didn't think this would be like a thing where they were like engineering it to not pass a confidence vote because like there's no need for that right like they, they can have an election whenever they want right it's not a not a real question of like they can they can just go to the, the chief justice <laughs> and say uh, the administrator and just say uh, yeah we don't feel like we have the confidence of the house please uh, please dissolve parliament uh, so yeah you yeah just to be clear I, I don't think that this was something they were like designing to fail I just think it's interesting that you picked two things that like on the NDP and conservative side that like plausibly rhymed with stuff that was in the budget uh, but no you yeah I think I think you're basically right on that score but yeah I, I do think this was something they were like planning to wave around for the next couple of months uh like in the context of an election or the lead up to one rather than like something they're going to be sitting on over the summer yeah and i mean that's because the budget is a uh, say it with me communications document <laughs> yes the, the greatest insight known to man uh yes and yet you will see it in uh, virtually every article about the budget or leading up to the budget yeah so it's like it's like the uh secretive board of internal economy yes you always have to mention that it's secretive 100 even though meetings are now open yeah which uh just incredibly fatiguing to see that in articles um so let's go yes. into the substance of the budget which is where i'll throw it over to you uh after i just mentally without looking at my notes here um big things that come to mind when i think budget 2021 now are uh child care a yep. fairly uh large serious pitch towards advancing uh some sort of national child care um that's the headline item um yeah I struggle to come up with a number two. Like, I, I have other things I could say, but none of them really... Um, there isn't, like, a, you know, the super clusters got some crumbs. There isn't, <laughs> there isn't like, a second large item um, <clears throat> that jumps to mind, and that's not a knock against the budget. When you do budgets, you can go with, I'm going to introduce a huge programs, or I'm going to, you know incrementally fund a lot of different things and this budget i would yes. say was somewhere in the middle um well it does both i would say well, that, that's sort of what i mean <laughs> yeah it's, it's somewhere yeah, in the middle and uh, that it does at least a few large programs and some incremental funding in you know yes a ton of different areas 
Yeah, um, that's the, the increments can be quite large, though. I mean, you know, we're, we're looking at the, the child care program is a very big one. It's a $30 billion investment in the budget over a certain number of years. But like the climate investment in this budget is, I believe, 17, I believe 17 billion dollars. I'd have to look again, but it, it's it's in the, you know, dozen plus uh, territory of things. And that's in addition to the, I believe, uh, 15 or 17 that was announced in December. So like there and that, you know, you put those two together, that's that's an equivalent amount of money in the climate pot over the last six months, as is presented in childcare. Um, and once again, that money is staggered out over a certain number of years, etc. But like, yeah, still just comparable. Yeah, but the climate pot is harder to sort of mentally reconcile with because it is not like a singular program, right? It gets it gets yes. divvied up into various envelopes. No, for sure. Which yeah, collectively like, make yeah. a large sum. Um, yes. But individually, it's harder to yeah, walk away from budget and be like, if you're not on the climate file, um, and yeah. say like, this is what those investments were in. No, for sure. It's not like there's like a big flagship thing in that file that you can look at. Like, wow, there's a lot of money for that. Because frankly, there you could say that with a lot of things, right? Like if, you, if you're into salmon, there's $650 million for you. If you're into... Uh, if you're a company looking to do net zero technology, there's, I think, $5 billion in it for you this budget. If you're a like, small business looking to build a website, there is 26000 <laughs> or 36000 I don't remember the number. Um, if you're if you're a homeowner looking Shopify for a loan employees. to get high-efficiency new stuff, you can get $40,000 from the government interest-free. We're not going to go into the, uh, the ground source heat pump versus the other types of heat pumps. Oh, uh, the air source heat air pump. Air source, yeah. rather, yes. Uh, Yes. Well, there's ground source and air source. Right? It's, so, it's a very important distinction. Fun. They cover both. We've had a lengthy argument about this <laughs> uh, in, in other places. Um, all, for, for me, like, I, I think, like, zooming out on the budget, like, I think there's the first thing people know, and th- it's amusing that we are now, like, I don't know, five minutes in discussing this budget. The word deficit has not come up, which I think is a sign of a healthy national conversation about public finance. <laughs> and we are the national uh, conversation about public finance. We, we really are. Yeah, no, that's all. We are, we are representative. And if, uh, if you're not hearing stuff that you think is part of the national conversation in this podcast, that means you need to write to us and complain about it. Uh, because we should be all things to all people. Uh, that's what this podcast is about. Um, no, but it, like obviously, yeah, it's a, it's a big budget, spending a lot of money, and certainly spending a lot of money in a, in a deficit position. Uh, my position on this has always been that like deficits are are fine if you are spending money well, because the whole point is that it makes sense to spend when interest rates are low. If you can get more than a dollar out of your investment. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you are investing for long-term growth, obviously, if you're investing for stuff like CERB to you know, keep people alive, then like, by all means, do so. Uh, that is money well spent. Uh, but I think what a lot of folks uh, have noticed about the liberal push innovation is that it's not very good, um, and it's unfocused and does not actually seem engineered to drive long-term growth. So one thing I wanted to talk about was Rabbi uh, Aslan, who we've mentioned before on the program. Uh, who is now at, uh, is he at the Business Council? That's or correct. is he like with McDonald Laurier? At any rate, he does. Business Council, not MLI. I, I think he is someone that is serious about this issue, who I nevertheless don't like really fundamentally agree with on, on the best answers to the question, but I think his diagnosis at least is, is reasonably um, sensible, which is that like there is a lot of money going towards innovation. So to take a couple of examples, uh, 
on the the sort of health and life sciences file, there's 5.5 billion dollars going towards you know various biomanufacturing things. Uh, he points out that the Strategic Innovation Fund, which we've talked about before, has getting 7.2 billion dollars in the next seven years. Um, you know, there's some money going to IRAP, which is the Industrial Research Assistance Program, if I recall the acronym correctly. But even if that's not exactly it, that's basically what it does. Like basically what it does. Um, so there's a lot of new sort of innovation money. But I don't think that it's well targeted. Like, I, I think, for instance, Strategic Innovation Fund has basically... Like, to take one really interesting example from the Strategic Innovation Fund, they gave a whole bunch of money to... And Etienne, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is coming from a different pot of money, but I believe it was through SIF, uh, for a Vancouver company called Upcelera, which is, was um, basically doing a, a therapeutic um, monoclonal antibodies, I think. For I have no idea how this freaking works. Could be alchemy me for all I know. But at any rate, it seems to be quite effective at treating the symptoms of COVID. So people are, are getting this treatment and it is working and making them not die. Which to me is, you know, that, that's good. That's great value for money. Like, hell, hell yeah. The problem is that no one in Canada is administering it. Uh, so yes, there was a sense, CBC like, article on this the other day. Yes, and the logic, uh, to its credit, did a, a great piece a couple weeks ago about it. Like, that to me is a missed connection here, where, like, we've created at, at you know, through publicly funded research and development, uh, this great therapy that is producing lots of results, and we're not actually seeing the direct benefits of it here, and it's unclear to which, the degree to which, like, Upseller is going to want to stick around in a country for the long term, where it's not <laughs> permitted to sell its uh, product. So what a lot of companies do is, because you're largely, like, in the IP world, which is what I, I happen to know a little bit about, just through some family connection, um, like companies will file their patents in the U.S. instead of in Canada because there's almost no point filing in Canada, and then they will, you, like, quite often just move to the U.S. once they reach a certain size and they want to play in the big league. For leagues. those wondering, Laurent uh, is related to Thomas Edison. That is the connection he is yeah, referring the inventor to. Inventor of the light bulb. Yes. Uh, yeah, so it's like that model is, and like to give them some credit, there's some money on, on IP in this budget to sort of try and address this problem. But like there is not like a big vision as to what they what levers they kind of want to pull to drive growth, I don't personally think. Uh, Robert Asselin's <clears throat> sort of prescription is to create a DARPA, but for like... It's kind of funny because we were just reading over this before we started recording and we were like, these are just the super clusters. <laughs> what he's describing are the super clusters of like private public partnerships in like sort of concentrated thematic areas that do sort of like all stage kind of like startup to scale up to, you know, widespread commercialization. Uh, but let, let me, clearly there are limits to that approach. Let me back out on the uh, on the innovation conversation a little bit. Um, sure. Because when we talk about Aslan, it's hard not to mention Spear. Any, anyone who's been listening to us will often ha throw their names together. Maybe at one point we should reach out to them and try and get them on the conversation, uh, into the conversation rather, uh, and present some of these challenges to them. Uh, but until then, um, so they wrote a few pieces. I mean, they often write together. Um, they wrote a piece uh, on uh, industry, uh, industrial strategy called, I think, A New North Star. Um, a new North Star two. A new North Star well. two, correct? <laughs> um, where they call for uh, an industrial strategy. That is somewhat distinct from what you're talking about in terms yes. of so 
Robert the, the as I working thing. via yeah. his employer, which is now the business council, the business yeah. council, um, where their pre-budget submission, um, and there was some media coverage of this, is calling for the DARPA or is calling for a Canadian version of DARPA, which, as they describe, sounds virtually nothing like DARPA. Um, <laughs> yes. The so. I'll let people do research on DARPA themselves, but the, the description uh, that the Business Council calls for is specifically we recommend that Canada create an agency similar to the United States Defense Research Projects Agency. Uh, the agency should focus on high growth sectors, which is not what DARPA does. Um, in... No, the high growth <laughs> sector being uh, beating the Soviets in the Cold War, I guess. <laughs> in which Canada has a competitive advantage. Well, you know, Americans did have a competitive advantage in the war. Um, Agri-food, health, biosciences, clean tech, energy, uh, advanced manufacturing, and digital services. For those unfamiliar with the innovation space of the government of Canada, these are the areas basically that were called out uh, in the Barton reports circa when Robert Eslain was working for government and basically found... Yeah, he, he, yeah, he was, a, just to clarify for folks, he was the director of policy at finance for Morneau, I believe, right? Yeah, director of policy, director of budget, yeah. finance has weird titles. Yeah. Um, sure. Um, the super clusters are basically this. I don't know that anyone... Well, and specifically, like, the thematic areas you've outlined here, like, three of the five have a super cluster. And there were other proposed super clusters that covered some yes. of these other areas, remember? Um, yes. Using public-private partnerships to help scale up and commercialize research. Yeah. I don't, you know, I've never worked at DARPA, but my impression is that they're not about the commercialization <laughs> of research. And it's, a, it's important to note that because there has been a lot of research that was originally done at DARPA that was subsequently commercialized uh, to great economic effect. Uh, but like, Ultimately, the mission of DARPA was, like, maintain and expand the, like, qualitative technological edge of the U.S. over the Soviet Union in terms of the military. And not, like, do a bunch of stuff with private companies that we can spin off into commercially successful products, right? Like, they had the mission first and the benefits were ancillary to that, though they were, I think, like, you know, there have been a lot of books written about how the significance of the U.S. government in terms of kickstarting Silicon Valley and other, you know, like the aerospace industry in the U.S. And, like, there, there's a huge nexus there that I think, you know, is worth thinking about from the lens of industrial strategies. Like, obviously, you know, mission-focused public investment can be a huge asset to a, a good industrial strategy. But, like, it, it has never, I don't think, at least not in, in the U.S. and certainly not through DARPA, been done through this lens of, like, we have to funnel money in this direct like if we had told darpa that the their job was to make a lot of money for people uh my russian would be a lot better than it is <laughs> <laughs> let's put it that way so yeah i mean it strikes me that they're using darpa here in a way that they could i mean in you know in a very similar way use the word nasa um in that basically they're using it as a stand-in for a successful government agency um, that, that is mission driven. That is mission yeah. driven and whose research and work has produced um, a lot of intellectual property and a lot of commercialization and benefits and spinoffs. But yes. it's really hard to imagine one, a single, like NASA focuses on space, DARPA focuses on defense. Um, yeah, although as opposed... defense is an extremely broad Yes, it is. I, I will concede <laughs> defense as a definition. 
has little asterisk, um, but it does not include agri-food, health, biosciences, clean tech, energy manufacturing, no. digital services. Well, an important thing about DARPA and NASA is that they are very waste tolerant. As they need to be. And I think yeah. that it's, a, yeah, as they need to be. But like, that's the thing is like, as a, like, as a political system, well, I say we're not waste tolerant. I guess actually we are. <laughs> but, you tell global but, affairs we're not waste yeah. tolerant. Yeah, fair enough. But like, at the, I feel like there are only so many missed bets you can make and people continue to have an appetite for it. Absent a mission like get us to the moon ahead of the Ruskies or, you know, uh, whatever DARPA does. Like, I can't think of an example. But um, yeah, absent that, if it's just like make a lot of good bets on industrial strategy, like that's harder to justify publicly when you get a lot of them wrong, as you will. And like, which is fine. It's, it's a productive part of the process, but like it is what it is. So I'm, I'm trying to loop this back to budget because we, we've, no, we've, we've, <laughs> we, we, we've got off track in a, uh, I would say, a good way. We always do. About, you know, I, th- I think listeners of the show appreciate that we will sometimes just veer wildly off the <laughs> slightest provocation. About the business councils. Um, and, and just to be clear on budget, by the way, like I, I think what we want to do over the next like weeks and months, because this is such a big budget, is have some folks by to talk about parts of it uh, who know more about it than we do. Because uh, as I said... You know, you look everywhere, these billions start to add up and you're starting to talk about real money after a while. So, <laughs> you know, we could we could talk about about large portions of it, but I think it would be a better place to have some experts uh, help help us tease out some of the uh, the nuances of some of this money that's being thrown around. Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying it is like one of the things that really jumps out uh, to you about budget. I, I joked about the, the Shopify corpse earlier. Uh, Core. Corpsman, Sorry. just like Obama, got it <laughs> yes, wrong. Corp. Lived, <laughs> fucking lived. <laughs> um, I can't remember if it was 26 or 36,000 young Canadians who will be hired to help businesses develop websites or digitize or something along those lines. I think it's like $1.2 billion um, that is going into this. And it's just like, that's a huge number. In a record, like... Let me just put that in perspective of the superclusters, which we often joke about, but the superclusters were a $1 billion investment over five years. Yes, um, yes but it would generate $25 billion of return. Yeah. So that, that, number, well that number no longer exists. And it's been, I'm still waiting on an A-tip for the math. And it's absolutely been destroyed. Um, but like the superclusters in the early days of this liberal government under Robert S. Lang were developed as a $1 billion bet on Canada's future innovation strategy. Really seems quaint. And now we're spending more than that to maybe have high schoolers teach small businesses how to make Shopify pages. Like some of these sums, and this is one of the criticisms of like losing a fiscal anchor, is that some of these funds are orders of magnitude off where I personally think they should be. Um, And a lot of people approach this budget as if it were all monopoly money. Um, and yes. you don't have the restraint of a fiscal anchor to say, well, let's let's tone back that proposal. Let's not run yeah, that proposal. The government, I think, yeah, won't like, let of uh, chafe slip through with the wheat on chaff. this one. I, 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 I will not very accept. Different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, and, and like, yeah, you, you're like, I think that that's fundamentally like the issue here is that like, I am not a guy who thinks like we need to like be 
incredibly like a hard line drawn in the sand about how much money is being spent because like at the end of the day it, it is monopoly money and we should we should embrace that <laughs> um but like embrace it productively right like you want to leverage the monopoly money you have now to have more monopoly money in real terms in the economy in the future um and that's that's good but like is a billion dollars spent on on like making every pizzeria in the country a, a nice little shopify page like really great federal money well spent i don't know and i'm inclined to think it probably isn't if someone has like a really good case to the contrary i'd be happy to see it but like i get the sense that they are kind of just saying yes to a lot of things at this point uh which may not be entirely productive and i think for instance one thing that came to mind for me was the $5.5 billion in sort of like uh, biomanufacturing life sciences stuff, which is like, I think, you know, them responding to the criticism they've taken about Canada being relatively unprepared to have like the vaccine manufacturing capacity, all this kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, in, the spirit, in that spirit, I think is, is, you know, reasonable. But on the other hand, like there is going to be a huge global glut of life and biomanufacturing sciences uh, money this year, like across the world. And is like, is this the best time to be spending that money on whatever we're trying to do? Or like, are we pursuing this in a way that makes sense? There's like some really open questions there that like, I just don't know will ever get answered and that like, will kind of get lost in the flood. Um, and that's, that to me is a problem. Yeah. Like not because like the deficit and like de debt services costs are still incredibly low, et cetera. It's just, any reasonable observer looking at the, the federal budget is like, this is on its current trajectory like it's not unsustainable obviously you couldn't do this every year but like as a one-off a budget this size is, is fine but like it would be nice if they could you know like make sure this stuff is well targeted yeah and let me give you another example um it's one that it's old folks um it's uh old age security there is a massive amount of money in this um in terms of a top up for oas um, which is a, a payment that goes to Canadians 75 years of age and older, um, who, you know, seniors are a group where there are very wealthy seniors and very uh, not wealthy seniors, low income seniors. Yes. Um, and making a huge investment in giving everyone untargeted cash. I mean, maybe this is something that people on the left side of the spectrum will disagree with, um, but sort of my fiscal conservative roots tell me to not do tons of untargeted cash to one of the wealthiest cohorts in Canada. Um, it was like my parents received $300 checks because everyone, you know, all the boomers did. Um, yeah. That in the early days. Well, yeah, of, and they're sending out the bonus checks of like 400 bucks in August right before the Yeah, and like once election, upon a time. Which is pretty, it's pretty nakedly cynical. Once upon yeah, a time, yeah. liberals would have laughed at the idea of Ralph Bucks. Um, yes, or beer, beer and popcorn money. Well, as, uh, that, that was not for that Harper, was not for seniors. Uh, that was no, but just the idea of just cutting people a check would have gotten you laughed out of the room in the nineties in well, Ottawa, in liberal circles. Wasn't the nineties? It was the nineties and early two thousands between Ralph Bucks mid, and the mid two thousands. Um, but yeah, Ralph Bucks was the nineties. Yes, I, I received my well. Ooh. No, it wasn't. It was not the nineties. Was it okay? Carry on. I'll, we can look I up the Ralph Bucks. I time. was in high school or junior high when I received my Ralph Bucks, which would not make it the nineties. Okay. Um, because I received Ralph Bucks, um, but like the liberals have taken basically to doing Ralph Bucks for seniors, 
Um, and no one is really noticing, and no one wants to talk. 2005, you're yeah, right. Yeah, I told you. Um, and no one's really noticing and no one's really talking about it and it's like an inordinate amount of money to an incredibly wealthy cohort and like just should not be happening Um, but it also does happen to be a cohort that votes or a demographic perhaps better than a cohort a demographic and the hilarious thing with the OAS thing is that it's kind of paired with GIS right which is the guaranteed income supplement which is the low income income targeted money targeted measure (laughs) which is like you could have done it on the other side of it. And it would cost uh, dramatically less. Didn't. Yes. Or we could give boomers who have benefited from, you know, everything. Well, and it's certainly it's certainly money. odd to me that if you're throwing around helicopter money in this economy, you're throwing it out to the asset richest cohort in the country. Yes. Like I have no real fundamental problem with the idea of Ralph Bucks and like I, I think like the US like um stimulus check is like you know it's it's, it it is what it is it's not like a necessarily bad idea but like if you're gonna target and they did they made a decision about who was getting money who wasn't why you would do it once again to the like and like it's worth saying too that senior poverty in canada is like has one of the lowest rates in the world um seniors in canada and like i think it's obviously like we say all of this it is obviously true that there are low-income seniors and certainly like that their experiences in eg long-term care homes over the last year has been hellish um but that it should not erase the overall picture that like as a class they are among the best off in the country yeah and i mean that was one of the criticisms of this budget was that it did not include money a lot of money around long-term care um but so this the uh, old age security bump up that we're talking about um, in the language here in total these two measures represent 12 billion over five years uh, uh, beginning in 2021 2022 and at least three billion a year ongoing three billion a year in ongoing costs is yeah. substantial it is a substantial it's money that in normal times would get looked at yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it would attract some scrutiny about whether it was well targeted. And yes. so, like sometimes, like the liberal partisans will point to a budget and be like, "Well, if you oppose this budget, like, what are specific measures you would remove?" And it's like, "This, this, I have, I have a list I can give you. I have lots. <laughs> yeah. I have lots. Do you, do you have an hour? Do you have a highlighter?" <laughs> and it's yeah. like it's an absolute no brainer that, in my mind, that this shouldn't be in here, or that it should hey, be in a different a... form. Um, Speaking of liberal partisans, uh, I just want to note how funny it is that uh, child care magically turned from provincial jurisdiction to federal jurisdiction the minute it appeared in the federal budget. <laughs> liberal budget, I should say. Uh, that was a, a, a neat trick of alchemy there from uh, from the boys at, at finance. Well, they're going to negotiate with the provinces. Oh, well, if you're negotiating with the provinces, then, oh, okay, well, okay, well, if, if that makes sense, then all The right. problem is really when the NDP have... 30 what is it 30 seconds to ask their question question period they don't make enough illusion you know yeah when, when complicated of people are dying in long-term care may be yeah. behind federal provincial negotiations yeah. really no they don't that's make that true point that, that's clear very responsible there needs to be a larger yes. asterisk on their question like, <laughs> dale smith you win <laughs> dullard of the week <laughs> Come claim your prize. So, what other what other funding measures in this budget would you like to talk about? Because I mean, there is. Oh, I, I think we're I think we're actually probably good for for this week. We're thirty five minutes in, so we can uh, we can call our day on the budget. And with the understanding that we will revisit the budget with uh, with some expert help, but this is just like 
Etienne and I are both uh, innovation heads when it comes to like thinking about what's interesting in the budgets and like this is just kind of like what we like to talk about. So if your pet issue did not get talked about, uh, too bad, I guess. <laughs> uh, we, we might come back to it. We might not. Uh, who knows? No <laughs> guarantees here, folks. <laughs> you get what you pay uh, for. You certainly do. Speaking of, uh, no. Um, yeah, so the other thing I want to talk about was the uh, O'Toole Environmental Plan, which Etienne alluded early on. Uh, it, it is not usually the practice of Canadian federal political parties to put out um, substantial portions of their, their election platforms substantially in advance of elections. I would say over the last several cycles climate has been something of an exception to this uh both the ndp and the conservatives released their climate plans ahead of the election last time around in 2019 andrew shears was only like maybe a week or two before i can't quite remember but like certainly like it was in the late summer of 2019 uh the ndp wanted to come out in i believe april or may um so a bit more lead time so um it's not unheard of on this file for, for things to come out ahead of time. Uh, and certainly I think the conservatives were feeling real pressure because they have sort of been placed themselves in the unenviable position of trying to look serious on the file without being serious on the file. Um, and this plan I think is certainly stronger in many respects than the Andrew Shearer version. But I we can uh, talk in broad terms about its merits and, and demerits briefly. But do you have anything to add on the sort of political context around it there? Sure. I mean, okay. So politically, Aaron O'Toole at the moment is in a tough spot with the party. Um, as, as any leader would be because it is one a It's always difficult for a political leader to brand themselves post-leadership uh, everyone's on a sugar buzz, on a sugar high rather. There's a new leader, and there's not a ton of uptake ever uh, by just the general Canadian population um, in terms of knowing who this person is. So you always have poll after poll after poll that says, no one knows who you are, no one knows who you are, no one knows who you are. And that always feels bad, and that starts to dim things. Um, and that ultimately leads the party to put out a bunch of ads that say, we must establish our brand, we must brand ourselves before the opposition brand us, and to dump a ton of money into advertising. That's sort of... Yeah, and a, a lesson the, the Harper conservatives like taught the liberals very decisively. Yes. And then they had to learn themselves. Yeah. Um, particularly in relation to Dion and Ignatieff. Um, and yeah. so that's sort of the proactive defensive game that the party's in right now. Um O'Toole's in a weird spot. I mean, O'Toole's not the only one. Uh, Jason Kenny's another one I could point to um, where I never thought I would say this, but he is being pulled. I mean, Jason Kenny, Rob Ford, basically any conservative in power right now. Doug Ford. Uh, Doug yes, Ford. sorry, Doug Ford. Um, <laughs> where they are wedged between um, their base and trying to appear reasonable or trying to govern um, during a public health crisis that requires substantial government intervention. Uh, so all of the leaders are sort of in the same position. Um, Aaron O'Toole is not in the govern during a public health crisis, but it's the set himself up um, to be reasonable, to be appealing to voters in the GTA. And a core tenant of this approach and this strategy is putting forward a environmental plan 
um, that is. Uh, it, pass, it has to pass a nod a, a test passable shield order, but when, yeah. when i say let, let's talk about pass a nod test because that was sort of the defense that was used of andrew Shear's climate plan um, yes which didn't i think it's worth saying but that's that's what people, people. sort of went into it yeah. saying like you know this is a 56 page document or whatever it was um there's all sorts of measures in here <laughs> And ultimately, yeah. it didn't amount to very much. It did not pass the nod test because it did not include um, substantial pricing measures that everyone who follows um, the environmental file looks for in terms of any type of climate plan. Um, and some sort of carbon pricing has become something of a marker of seriousness in the realm of, of climate policy, which I think is perhaps not entirely honest or productive. But in like, you know, I, I think there you could conceivably do a, an effective climate plan that didn't have carbon pricing. It, I think at this point that horse is off the barn and like it's not an option anymore. Yes. Politically with with the like the climate policy universe. Yeah, you're thinking like a car, uh, carbon budget, I think, like other mechanisms that. Well, carbon budget is an accountability measure more than it is like an emissions reduction measure, but like. You could do it theoretically all on the regulatory side or, you know, whatever, like on the technological side. But yeah, you at this point, politically, in terms of where the, the state of climate policy is globally, in terms of like where industry wants to go at this point, uh, in terms of wanting the reliability and predictability of a carbon price, that's where everyone is. So, but you have the political context of a conservative party that has spent the better part of a decade. Um Oh, well, more than that. <laughs> the better part of two decades. Well, no, not Three, entirely. Um, not entirely. There are there are some exceptions in there. Um, Shit-talking um, the liberals on carbon pricing. Um, so that's all the background here. So Aaron O'Toole um, sits down with um, his policy team. Well, it's worth, being, it's worth being a little more direct about this. Any attempt at carbon pricing for the last two decades, with the exception of the BC Liberal 2008 one, is a carbon tax in, in the conservative political universe. And that a carbon tax is a an, an unwelcome tax grab to take from, you know, it's a tax on everything that takes from families to appease these psycho hippies who care about this stupid, you know, glaciers bullshit. Uh, that has been the mindset of, of the conservative sort of like brain trust and political class for the last 20 years i don't at least it's public position <laughs> so what yeah one of the reasons i'm finding issue with that and i wasn't prepared to say 30 years um was because once upon a time um and conservatives generally don't like being reminded of this but harper proposed a carbon tax himself um yes. but ultimately did not follow through on it um the yes. uh conservative governments in alberta did carbon pricing on a small scale um that largely funded technology like, yeah there are, I, I think there are a lot of exceptions it, to this a lot of different yes. carve outs and i think we're still in the, the opposition world has become the opposition has become more emphatic monolithic and uh well actually yeah monolithic and emphatic in response to uh the liberals and ndp adopting formally those policies. Yes, because it's become a partisan wedge issue. It's a reaction. It, it's yeah, it's exactly. hundred percent. It's become a partisan wedge issue, um, where there was perceived political well, gain. Yeah, this is the Obamacare effect, right? It's like it's all the conservative think tanks designed carbon pricing in the '90s, 
And then everyone else did them, and then it, it became big government socialism in hindsight. Yeah, and one of the, I mean, the overriding challenge for conservatives is that carbon pricing and environmental policy fundamentally are not viewed the same way in, a, in Ontario and Quebec as they are in the prairies. Yes, there is a fundamental political economy challenge here where we have a very loud and powerful and regionally concentrated, which in our political system counts for a lot of political representation, uh, fossil fuel industry. Which represents the majority of uh, conservative elected MPs. Um, yes. And so when you're trying to do anything environmental um, as a conservative, these represent... Uh, significant voices within the party that you have to contend with who are coming at it with the Alberta, you know, the Alberta industry voice, which is one, trust me, I know yeah. very, very well. Yeah. Well, and also I think it's worth saying like double digit numbers of conservative MPs who just do not think, who think this is fundamentally a fake issue. Yes. But the yeah. challenge... <laughs> like, it's, they're like, well, why bother? Like, this is fake, so who cares? But the political challenge is if you're going to make inroads in the GTA and in Quebec you need to, as you said, pass the non-test on these issues. And so yeah. there's a tension between anyone in the Conservative Party who genuinely wants to grow uh, the tent of the Conservative Party and feels the need to include um, what are seen as more serious um, environmental policies yeah. versus those who are comfortably sitting on 70% uh, you know, margins in terms of uh, how much they won their riding The by. guy from Battle River Crowfoot, like, it does not really have to work. Yeah, but there's the dynamic that the people from the very, very safe ridings are often the voices. Who are the loudest, who are against, the loudest item. against items. Oh no, even, my margin might decline to 80% from 85. <laughs> no, they do not uh, <laughs> remotely impact yeah. their re-election. I've often... You know, I've often faced this as sort of a shadow boxing issue with people talking about the Maverick Party and about how the Maverick Party was going to... Is going to take all of the... Oh, yeah, same with PPC last time. But and, yeah, it's not going to happen. Not at scale. These things do not yeah. happen. Um, and yet people get very concerned about them because they see a right-wing challenger and they become very, very concerned. Well, and what happens is that, like, and, and like, look, this happens all the time on the left, is that you have people who are the most passionate and committed who are involved because they care about the issues, who are get involved in, you know, the Battle River Crowfoot EDA, and then get pissed off and leave and join the Maverick Party or the PPC or whatever. And it's like, yeah, there are people who are, like, part of your EDAs who you know and, like, interact with who are going to leave and be pissed off, but they don't represent the median voter at all. And, like, you know, like, we can d discuss how good it is that Canadian politics is hyper-focused on the median voter. And, you know, I think to some extent it's not the best thing in the world. Uh, but the reality is that that's what parties are most concerned about. And like the median voter on climate has a sweet spot where they want to feel that the government is doing something about it, but they don't really want to feel the cost too much. Right. And that that is the sweet spot for conservatives where they need to emphasize the costs and emphasize that the government what the government is doing is not actually effective. Right. And that's why, you know, for a long time, there's been like carbon taxes don't actually reduce emissions, which isn't really true. <laughs> but like that was a line they've been relying on for a long time. So I, I think all that to say this is the political context for this plan. Let's let's go, uh, which I guess we can into now talk the substance about of the plan. Bit. Um, so yeah. in interest of covering the whole plan, um, let's put aside the uh, actual pricing element of it and just quickly run through the other pieces. 
Um, well, can, can we talk about the three-legged stool of how climate plans? Sure, that that could be a good work? way to start. Okay, Th- that yeah. So basically, like right now, our climate plan, broadly spoken, is it's a three-legged stool. Really, there's a fourth leg, kinda, and I'll get to that. The first leg is pricing, which I think the government has sort of staked staked its <laughs> chair at that point. Yes, <laughs> it could be a really tall, like bar bar stool, you know, but. Um, yeah, so pricing is the one that the government has sort of said is, and I think sort of discourse on this has followed that. This is the one that is the indicator of seriousness, and the you know it's the most broad based, which is you know when you're talking with taxation is typically. But good, this is where uh, and, and reaches the. But further. this is where like the conversation is skewed, because it is not the the liberal carbon pricing scheme does not represent the majority of emissions reductions. No, it's about a and I'll come third. To, that's a, of emissions yeah. reductions are anticipated to be in relation to the what I'd call the consumer price on carbon. Yeah, which takes us to leg number two, which is OBPS, the output-based pricing system. So basically, if you think about it, like the, the consumer carbon price is an inputs-based pricing system. Consumers, people who, who make things, buy fuel, the fuel is, 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 has a carbon tax applied to it. That's the input-based. Output-based is based on industrial emissions. And uh, I don't understand it as well as Etienne does, uh, so I will let him elaborate if there's anything politically to elaborate on. So, o- OBPS is reasonably complicated. At a high level, what it is is it has been structured around concerns that if you go after the large emitters, um, you on the on the consumer price they would be driven out of business. Well, that um, yes, yeah. um, but if you go after large emitters just in a blanket way you create issues of what's called carbon leakage, which is that they move across jurisdictions, um, be it provincial or federal, and they move into jurisdictions that are more friendly on them. So it becomes very hard to tax a, let's use an industry, the cement industry. um, Which is quite emissions intensive. On emissions, um, without them just packing, packing up shop. And it's worth saying, I think for a lot of people, they hear like, you know, like, oh, the companies will pack up and leave and they think either not true or like, well, fucking let them. The issue here is when you're talking about emissions is that if the net effect is that they leave and go to a jurisdiction with less stringent pricing controls. It's and, counterproductive. And regulation. It, it is literally you will have more emissions. As a more result, emissions and less which money. Is, and which is you bad. push bad things yeah. into jurisdictions with low regulations. So that, that's the yes. compromise on this issue. And what it means is, I have to do a refresher on this, but just off the top of my head, the way the output uh, OBPS is structured is that they, they work around a median for industries. Um, so... It creates a. It's, it's a cap and trade kind of on a big scale. A, uh, yeah. Sort of a median amount of emissions relative to what you're producing, um, and yeah. says like, are if you greater median, or less than this? And yeah. and it prices around that, um, and it does yeah. that because doing things in absolute terms can make it very expensive. So it's a relative system rather than an absolute term system. Um, yeah, and it's worth saying on the, on the question of carbon leakage is that it does seem like there's a, there were this was in the budget and as well it was announced by the Biden administration that they're going to be looking at this is some sort of border adjustment for carbon. 
Uh, so basically, as, as goods would come into uh, jurisdictions with carbon pricing, they would uh, yeah. have a tariff imposed to sort of match the price. So this was something... Uh, that could make sense at scale. If the U.S. and Canada do it in concert, it could be a reasonably I, productive I go. don't see but, this uh, ever happening. I think it's insanely complicated. I, I think complicated. it's very hard, very hard How to do you, what, what is yeah. the carbon you know, footprint of... The 52 USB cords I ordered on AliExpress last week. <laughs> like, who is going to determine that? Like, no one knows. No. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, it just depends. On and, the and it, but yeah, and it represents, that, like, a broad tariff on all down. goods imported into a country. Like, yes. Well, that's that's the point is that it would make everything more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Much like on the carbon price. Uh, so that brings us to the third stool. Like, at the stool, not the third stool. We don't need three stools. Uh, which is um, regulation. So the, the government has pursued a, a broad variety of, of, you know, things that are like we have the clean fuel standard, which, you know, lowers the sort of um, carbon content of fuels. There's, uh, you know, methane emissions regulations, all kinds of stuff. So basically all things that happen under the hood um, quietly that force companies to do stuff at a cost uh, that lowers emissions. So th that is the sort of heavy command control way. It, I think, you know, it can be extremely effective the the economist argument is always that um it is less efficient to do it uh it, it is a costly way to reduce emissions but at any rate uh we i think we've discussed that on the, on the show before and like we can certainly do more climate policy in the future but that for just for the purpose of understanding those are the three broad you know things that drive emissions down in terms of the things the government can do the other one which is the, the shadow the shadow foot if you will is uh technology so the government investing in research into ways to bring emissions down whether it's alternative energy fuels carbon capture and storage uh you know the amorphous solar panels wind farms what have you like really anything right so there's a lot of stuff in that basket that that could happen and i think that's where uh, i think Etienne wants to talk about a lot of the stuff in the o'toole plan but suffice it to say on the first three stools is that it legs, leaves OBPS... Le legs the, of the stool. <laughs> yeah, sorry. The O'Toole plan leaves the OBPS lag completely unchanged. Not, not, not so it's tool. worth saying that in the uh, Alberta and Ontario... So rel I, relatively speaking, OBPS, I think, does something like twice as much in terms of reducing emissions as... Yes. Um, the consumer it's, carbon yeah. price, but and that is largely because we have really, really, really emitting heavy industry. Canada. One of like other countries, they could have a more favorable ratio that have like a less carbon intensive industrial. The, the OBPS has been, or its equivalents provincially, have been here in yes, Alberta, EG. and there's a, a comparable one in Ontario, have not had the political scrutiny, even though they are the things that reduce emissions more. Um, so it's always been a really interesting dynamic where most of the political capital is spent on one of the measures that actually does um, not uh, maybe not the least, but among the least. It does the most. It does production. the most per dollar. It, like it does the most per dollar, but it does not do the most like, actual terms. gross most. Yeah, yeah. So OBPS stays the same. Regulation gets strengthened actually to some extent, though I think the government wanted to strengthen a couple of stuff like announced both in the December uh, 2020 environmental plan they announced as well as in the budget. There are some commitments to, to tighten. So it, the degree to what would be the actual differential at the, you know, full length of both of the plans, hard to say. 
But at any rate, the O'Toole plan would strengthen some of the regulations on actually on the model of the BC government uh, for some of this stuff. I, I don't fully understand the implications of, of exactly how um, the low carbon fuel standard in BC uh, is different from the clean fuel standard federally. Sorry. <laughs> but all that to say that the conservative plan would, would place more emphasis on the regulatory side than the current liberal federal plan does and as a consequence come away with more emissions reductions on that side of things on the consumer pricing side of things which is where most of the energy has gone into analyzing this plan is where and i think they did themselves no favors here quite candidly i think um it's a bit goofy so they've capped the consumer price at 50 dollars per ton over like the whole length of its rollout and then our Instead of doing the rebates and the backstop jurisdictions, jurisdictions, excuse me, they are remitting the price that each consumer pays in the consumer carbon price, which is no longer being called that, of course, because it's no longer a tax. You are being remitted every cent you pay through a third-party consortium of private sector companies into a sort of account, savings account, that you can then use to buy various low carbon goodies um the list of which i'm sure would be the subject of much lobbying so i do not i i mean this in the cruelest way possible this is an extremely jack layton ndp idea from circa 2004 uh, of like very gimmicky populism hooked up to a kind of dumb lever um and i think they've deserved the heat they've got on it i i do think they have perhaps gotten not quite enough credit on the regulatory side but frankly it is really dumb and i think they do deserve the heat they're getting on the consumer side the concern the liberals came out immediately with uh, the more you burn the more you earn and i made a crack about as a new owner of a propane barbecue i would be happy to be <laughs> earning all kinds of rewards while uh, precisely searing meats and vegetables and like it, it, the, the core injustice of the carbon tax as perceived by the conservatives is that I, who live, you know, in an urban neighborhood in Ottawa, don't own a car, etc. I get a bunch of money back from the government for not burning a bunch of carbon. Uh, but someone who, you know, lives in Toronto suburbs, has a large SUV, drives their kids to, you know, hockey practice, whatever, uh, and, and just generally, like, burns a lot more carbon, or someone from, from Atan's hometown, Fort McMurray, who, you know, has to drive 45 minutes to get to the grocery store. Or whatever. I know Fort McMurray has grocery store closer to 45 minutes. <laughs> but, uh, but, like, someone in a really rural area where that's the reality, right? And, like, that is the perceived core unfairness, is that it's a heavier tax on rural people. And, like, it, it is impossible to argue, I think, that it is not a tax that falls heavier on rural people. It absolutely is. Um, but some point you kind of have to look at like well the whole point of this is to reduce emissions so like if you if you make the stuff that is emitting more expensive a rural lifestyle that burns more carbon etc is going to be more expensive and like it's just very hard to get around that central fact so, uh and like you you could do other things you know to make let, life in let, rural areas more affordable but like that lever is hooked up to that and that's what let, let me challenge a little bit of that because there are actually some tweaks to the liberal uh, carbon pricing scheme in this budget, um, among them making it uh, delinking uh, rebates from tax returns and making them quarterly. Quarterly, um, yeah. as well as I believe uh, something around agriculture. I'd have to look a second time, 
there is yeah there's a couple money in agricultural measures but they're kind of one-offs and there's like investment making like grain drying technology like more carbon efficient etc so yeah on on the face of it like you're right like people who live in rural areas where they live far apart from each other will have to drive because they don't have access to public transit yeah like i'm not saying like fuck rural people right i'm saying that like if you want to reimburse people for these costs like you can do that it's just that the carbon lever the carbon tax lever is hooked up to carbon right it's just very hard to get but that's that would be my pushback is that i do think the liberals or you know the liberals or everyone else should put a greater um accounting into how to mitigate that um because fundamentally what you have is yeah it's it's hooked up to carbon however people in rural areas are less able to they have less options if you are a farmer, you cannot make the option to catch the bus, right? So you, you can make some small options, but you cannot dramatically change your way of life without being, you know, without moving into the city. Yeah. And we already have issues around um, rural areas being gutted and people leaving and, uh, you know, the death of family farms and all of these other things. So like broadly speaking, making the cost of living in rural areas um, substantially more uh, unattractive is not necessarily a something we're trying you know something we want as public policy um Mm -hmm. even though it's linked to that reduction of carbon so i I think there's a balance that really seriously needs to be considered there and i'm not sure it's necessarily right right now no but yeah i just don't think the place to do that is carbon pricing policy right like i think if you want to spend more on rural economic development and rural cost of living like there are other places you can do but, that but tying, but i just don't think that but tying those two things together i think are important yes um sure in, that's, in the whole, that's the whole that's the whole logic behind way. like a, yeah that's the whole logic behind like just transition right is that like we don't want to leave communities behind we want to ensure that you know people can stay where they live and then you know but it's just like yeah you're right like you absolutely do need to link them i'm just saying that like you're not going to use that precise policy lever to do it you could you could skew yeah but you could but it looks like you could but it looks like this right there are various tax return incentives for people living in rural areas you get more back on their taxes etc right yes (coughs) oh we got a big sneeze coming we got a big sneeze coming excuse me um so let let's i i would love to dispute this uh at length but let's actually go into my issues with the uh the conservative car or the, the points uh, card, the the point system, the uh, the fun box, the so, yeah, the list. So, I think right? so. Listen, I I think it can't be overstated. Uh, first, to to go back to political context, that what Arrow Tool has done here in terms of including a stealth carbon pricing mechanism um, is he is trying to put forward a very serious. Um, you know, a large step forward in terms of where uh, conservative uh, climate policy has been. And when you compare it to Andrew Shears, I think it does that. I think it is, you know, an order of magnitude more likely to pass the Nod test. And it already has. There, this there is, a, I, I think it's at least, Enviro yeah, it's at least tanks, a facially plausible plan. Enviro yeah. think tanks who've, uh, who've given it credit, I think it has less holes. 
um, than basically anything put forward by the conservatives. No, yeah, level. all of the all of the reaction from the the engos has been like, it's nice to see the conservatives finally adopt carbon pricing, which I'm sure is not really the headline they were looking for. But... Yeah, which is where <laughs> can I can I make can I make one quick comment no. before we? Which, which is where one I, I need. Which, <laughs> which is where. Um, you know, there, there is a political calculus that should be made of like, aha, they're doing what we said. We should rub it in their faces. Yeah. Um, they rubbed it a little bit. Or, they rubbed it a little bit. I mean, but fundamentally what that does is that impairs it over the long term. Because, yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone thinks um, that this is now cemented in conservative ideology. And if Aaron O'Toole loses the next election, I think this will form the case uh, a, a, you know, this will be in the factum of those trying to depose. Yep, um, I think you're right. from leadership. So I, I think it's important to acknowledge what a risk this was. Um, that even though it's not necessarily the you know the platonic ideal of what a perfect um, environmental plan would be, I, I do think it is a a serious one um, given the political climate. All that being said, yeah. the specific measures around this tax savings account are or the, yeah, this carbon savings account are absolutely insane. <laughs> like they're just sort of funny. Um, yeah, it, let, it is. It was really comical. Let, let me like, read a line from it. Canadian families and businesses have been trailblazers in the use of affinity or rewards programs and have great expertise. <laughs> we love them. <laughs> in both managing and using them. I personally have great expertise in managing air miles. Um, to the point where I decided to close my Air Miles account because I was getting virtually no points and I cashed it in for a dehydrator that I've had for a year and I have not used despite my best intentions of making beef jerky. Well, we have a we have Neil's scene points. That is true. Another another great <laughs> Canadian <laughs> another great Canadian rewards program. The language there is just laughable. Um, but broadly, so I think two things. One, um, the administration of this program would be incredibly an, in, an incredibly interesting policy challenge to solve for. That being the said, list alone, a lot the of list alone critics, I think, have overstated the complexity of it. Um, in terms of, you know, the government would have to require would have to um, gather data on every single Canadian. I think there are workarounds and ways you can solve well, for that well, keeping yeah. the data the workaround seems to be to give it to a private consortium well no but like <laughs> for instance my gas bill they know how much i consume already right so that yeah. solved for that second of all this is only on fuels similar to the carbon price a lot of people don't seem to realize that the liberal carbon price is basically only on fuels input based um, baby but just manufacturers pay it up front for the electricity etc yeah use. so oh. you you could do yeah. something like um, gas stations have a card or a, a tap reader that you tap your QR code or whatever the hell you're trying to do, and it would just credit money to your account for how much fuel you purchased. And that just yes. goes into account and you get bucks assigned to that. And the, uh, and the consortium um, gives you money that it requests from the government and it sort of passes it along. Yes. Um, without having, you know this grand panopticon of data that a lot of people seem to think would be required. Well, I mean, it, 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 it I mean, it is a lot. Of no, but you can, you okay. can break it's... it up into chunks is what I'm saying. So that no sure. single person is really holding all the keys. Um, more, any more so than, you know, 
Air Miles knows every items I've, I've purchased. That's not the way Air Miles works. Like, I don't think Air Miles knows, you know, the exact details of every item I've purchased. Um, That's so, isn't that the whole model that they then sell your data for advertising money like i mean i mean the, maybe i'm wrong about how air miles works that, that's the whole that's the whole like model of points cards is they collect your your like the information about your consumer spending habits and use it to yeah but they're not they're money. not that granular right so they're pretty Boston granular pizza, this is why this is why you get specific ads but, like tailored no, to no, no, no. I, I think i think, I think you're flyer. misunderstanding this at Boston Pizza, you buy a Bandera bread, maybe buy a, <laughs> a medium, always. a medium pierogi pizza. You know, maybe a couple orders of buffalo wings. Uh, not actually on the item uh, on the menu. Um, you end up with. Do they not have wings? No, no, Boston they have wings, pizza? just not buffalo wings. They're not called buffalo wings. Oh, okay. Um, you end up, you end <laughs> up with a hundred dollar bill at Boston Pizza, right? You swipe your Air Miles card as you go to leave. You are assigned Air Miles per thirty five dollar increment you spend. That's it. Mm-hmm. So the data they have about you is whether or not you used a coupon, uh, what Boston pizza you're at, how often you go to Boston pizza, things along those lines. But they don't know that you love pierogi pizzas. They don't know your your bandera bread was absolutely delicious. I, I think I think a restaurant purchase is very different from a grocery store. I can do grocery store. Can, it's the same leave, thing. It's a per dollar leave, amount. We can leave the conversation around points it, cards. It is a per dollar amount unless you're using coupons or buying the special items that have special air miles linked to them, right? That's that's my point, is that all of the companies that use these have a base level of air miles. Anyways, that's how the air miles program works. Okay. Um, so all of that is to say, you know, when you start looking into the details of the uh, carbon savings account, there are a lot of questions, a lot of questions that come to mind. What products are going to be uh, are going to be eligible for the rewards? You know, the fundamental idea of putting money aside into a like green saving account versus having cash in hand is not one that I find particularly compelling from a conservative perspective. Um, well, keep in mind too that it's 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 money that is it. it it's like not a Canadian dollar that you're getting back, right? You're getting back an O'Toole fund buck. Yes. And there, I mean, yeah. I also have questions around like uh, displacement. So, I mean, the goal of the program as stated is that say I'm driving my Hummer, I buy a hundred, a thousand dollars in gas, a hundred dollars of that is tax. Um, I now have $500 in my uh, green account. I can buy that. I can use that towards buying green items. If I buy my kids bikes with that money, um, my Hummer driving has not changed. My kids weren't riding motorbikes. Um, so there is no carbon offset to that. That, that doesn't do anything. Um, so I have just paid a tax that put money in my kids bikes account um, and has had no net impact on carbon. Um, so like, there's lots of examples like that. There's also like, I don't know what a lot of people would spend this money on. If you're a renter um, and you have a bike already, I don't know what like large green items. Yes. So would this is qualify. this is an important point. So the current system that exists with the rebate is a imperfect but real channel of redistribution from people who have a lot of money to people who have less of it. And this is not a redistributive uh, system. That's that's like it is the not. most uh yes you can say the most like it's a very significant difference yeah yeah, because every dollar you spend in that tax you get back in your account presuming the administration is being covered by someone else 
um, which is very different than the way the incentives work um, in the liberal pricing, which is to say you are working off a baseline of what you're going to get back. And for every dollar you don't spend on these things, you're making, you can, you have the potential to make money. Um, but if you're, you know, say, say you live in a condo downtown, you buy propane. And at the end of the year, um, you have $20, you'd be buying a lot of propane. Um, you have $20 on your card. What can you spend it on? And you don't have, you're not insulating your house. You're not buying a green vehicle, a plug-in electric vehicle. I mean, I have very real questions about how this money would be spent for a large amount of the population because, you know, unless these items get really granular and include things like bike helmets and bike locks and, you know, various accessories. The infra yeah, you buy a bike, but then it's all the stuff you need to have with a bike to, like, enable the use of your... Yeah, but, no. like, the list like of the items list, is, like... The list would be a nightmare to maintain. Home yeah. retrofitty stuff, cars, yeah. um, and bikes. And, like, is there anything I'm missing? Am I, like... More like, efficient windows? Well, that's, so home, that's home stuff. Like, is yeah, there yeah. any other category that is plausibly on, know. like, energy efficient Tofu? light bulbs? Maybe? Maybe. that was that retrofitty stuff? Well, yeah. Like, that's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of my challenge. It's a big here, category, right? yeah. No, no. I Look, I agree. Like, it, it, this would be... It, it's worse if you are... Like, yeah. This plan is much worse for you if you are a person who rents in a city. Or who already has an planets. efficient house and... A car oh, already has and now what are you going to spend your money on you've already paid all of these costs up front what what, are, what yeah. are you to do you're already driving your prius yes but you're not burning as much carbon i guess in that case but yeah no it's hard to know who the constituency for this is except for the people who are most vocally aggrieved by the structure of the current carbon tax the current carbon tax so there you go i think that will we'll, we'll leave that there i think we, we've said what there is to say about it uh for now uh, we are already really long. Uh, we could talk about the public health stuff really quickly. Um, I guess the, the one comment I really wanted to make there, and I'll, I'll run through it, and if you want to add anything, please do, uh, is that over the last couple of weeks now, we've seen the Ford government in Ontario, especially, and apologies if we're being Ontario-centric here, it's just where we both live, so we, we have to live with this shit every day. I love you, Alberta. So, uh, that, we're very pissed off. Uh, is Doug Ford coming out this week and, and tearfully, you know, saying, "I, you know, I'm the I'm the boss. I got to take responsibility." But also, none of this is my fault. It's all Justin Trudeau's fault for not giving us vaccines fast enough, and for not closing the borders. And on the not giving the vaccines fast enough, like I think we can litigate like what more the federal government could have done when it was signing the contracts. But like at this point, I don't really know what the federal government could be doing that it isn't to like get more vaccines faster. Like I think we in large like largely have exceeded targets rather than missed them when it comes to delivery, especially in the last month or so, less so early on. Um, so that's good news and like, great. Uh, hopefully we'll get vaccinated relatively soon. Um, but on the border closures thing, I just want to talk about that because it's been the position of the government that we all have to stay home, but also we shouldn't stop international flights because they don't matter when it comes to spreading COVID. And I think that's based on the idea, there was an idea early on, and I think it's correct, that in the opening days of, you know, a new illness being discovered, you don't want to close borders because that disincentivizes countries from being open about sharing information about a new disease. 
and I think that's that's reasonable. That's kind of like you zoom out and you you start thinking what what would happen if everyone started like being hyper secretive because they were worried about this and it wouldn't be a good thing. Of course, that didn't stop the relevant government in this instance from being hyper secretive about the emergence of a new illness. So, uh, but I think that this concern is most relevant precisely in those opening days and not like a year later when we are have been in a pandemic for a year. And it's not like there's, like, information being, you know, hidden in any realistic way. Um, or at least not systematically. Like, obviously, I think every country has undercounted COVID deaths for a variety of reasons, but there you go. Uh, so, for me, this insistence that it simply doesn't matter, uh, and it also, also counter... Or, sorry, the insistence that it's counterproductive, I think, is, is wrong in this specific instance. To the instance that it's not effective, like, okay, maybe, but that is very reliant on information we don't have uh, i think it, it best case we are always guessing what the effectiveness of any single public health measure is uh because we're not doing them in isolation we are doing them as part of a package so and also you know they're saying like oh well only so many people are reporting back to contact tracers our contact tracing systems i think we've established like are barely functional our quarantine international quarantine system that the the, gov- the federal government is insisting is you know the harshest in the world is extremely porous like i think you, people have been very upfront about saying that like there is just a exodus of people leaving international airports being handed four thousand dollar tickets by public health agency and just saying like yeah we're not going to pay that by and then just leaving um so like i don't know in what world you you're living that you don't think closing international flights would like not make a difference at all to the point that it's not worth doing like, I don't know what the benefit is of continuing to allow them from hotspot jurisdiction. Like, it just seems so, like there's this bizarre count. Like, you, it seems impossible to me to hold the idea in your head at the same time that, like, everyone has to do their part and stay home unless you're doing international travel, in which case, Godspeed, have fun. <laughs> so, like, I don't get so it. So let me, let me just add um, to this. I think, I mean, there, there was an article recently about the government closing down a... Um, a variant surveillance program that they had um, once they realized the variant was already in the country and they didn't, and you know, and they felt like they were closing. Our work is done. Folks. <laughs> they were closing the barn doors <laughs> after um, the cows had run out. Uh, cows, horses, however that expression goes. Usually horses. horses. Yeah. Cows. Your earth creatures. <laughs> um, which is one view. I mean, it's certainly a view um, but I do think a lot more effort should have been in place in relation to preventing the problematic variants from getting a foothold in the country, um, which a lot of that has already happened and, you know, is, is presently happening. BC just reported that the, uh, the really brutal variant uh, from India, there is now something like 60 to 70 reported cases. Um, and slowly provinces are reporting out that they also have uh, instances of that variant around. A lot of people look at the travel conversation and say, well, look at the the chart. Very few cases are actually linked to travel. Um, but it's not about the absolute number of cases. It's relative to the risk of the variant coming from those areas yeah. and it, the introduction of new variants. And this is going to continue to be a thing um, as we go forward, right? So, you know, one of, in the vaccine arms race, um, you know, the G7, the United States, elsewhere, are going to be the first ones who get close enough maybe to herd immunity um, to really suppress it. 
Um, but there is going to be a, a substantial lag period in other parts of the world. And there are going to be really, question, uh, really tough questions around travel to and from those regions of the world when they still are unvaccinated and we are vaccinated. Like the, the questions around travel are not going away. Um, they are no. only going to increase. So establishing a clear um, sense of policy direction on this, I think is important to do now, um, as it will likely be um, one we will have to lean on and rely upon for, you know, I don't know what the projections are for when the the global south broadly gets vaccinated to a 70 plus percent threshold but i imagine it's going to be a very long time um so there's going to be a lot of questions around travel into the future and i don't think the conversation around travel in canada um, which has been continuing it but then making harsh and punitive hotels um which have awful that people seem to just stories. be able to just skip well either <laughs> Some there, so the problem with those is we haven't actually seen a ton of reporting. It seems to be on an anecdotes yeah. basis that like uh, we have a, a succession of anecdotes from people coming through. The first ones were like we just walked out of the airport, and then it was like people that was we tried to walk out, and then we got a ticket or were stopped. And it's hard to yeah. keep abreast of sort of what the state of affairs is for international travelers if you don't have well, then that's um, yeah, ongoing which is itself reporting. bad. Um, yeah, because like. Yeah, if, if someone were traveling to Canada from Cancun and were like, Aitzen, um, you follow Canadian politics and news really well. What should I expect when I get to the airport? And the answer is like, I don't I, like, yeah, I have no idea. idea. Like, I, I don't know if they will try and detain you or what. But yeah. it, when it happens, let me know and I can relay that into the. I, yeah, I had Twitter some friends sphere. ask me back in like February about like international travel for like your family. And my advice at the time was pick where you want to be for the next six months and stay there. Yeah. And I, I, I would still stand by that advice. <laughs> but we have, I mean, we're now in almost May. Um, all of the uh, snowbirds are coming home, right? It's, you know, the flowers are pushing up in Canada. So this is prime time. <coughs> it's easy boy uh, today. I, uh, I dusted this room, so maybe that's residual dust in the air from that. Um, mm. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a lot of questions around travel. I don't think Canada has pursued it in a evidence-based way. I think it's been punitive at times and lax at others. Um, yeah, because I mean, like, the, the original wave of, like, quarantine restrictions was basically in response to the last time the, the two biggest provincial governments started, like, saying, hey, you know what, this is all the Fed's fault. Again, it looked like, to be clear... I think the federal government's handling of borders has been like ad hoc bad and only because they've been pushed to do stuff and not remotely evidence-based and not certainly not like precautionary based as many of their other measures have been, whether good or bad. Um, so it well, like not advising masks because they thought they didn't have any evidence that it prevented spread of COVID. Is that precautionary? E.g. That, well, yeah, because they're like, well, we don't have evidence, so you shouldn't do it. That's that the opposite the sort of, of original. No, it, well, it's, yeah, it's like we don't have evidence, so you shouldn't do it. Was it's like inverse precautionary? Okay, yeah, I guess. That's... Like I would have thought, yeah, like it's a, a twisted sense of the precaution. At any rate, like I would say, it, their stance to Bordas has been very strange and somewhat inexplicable to me. Uh, and I'm sure there is like once again a black hole that is like shaping the gravity around this issue that I just simply cannot see. But I'm very curious to know what it is. But yeah, the, the the provinces have also been very bad, and I think that you know, like obviously they're they're coming at the feds on the one issue where I think their their credibility is really weak, 
um well two if you count the vaccines and saying like hey well you know not our fault look at this but yeah it's uh it's bad out there folks and you know it's uh I don't think anybody deserves to get reelected here. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's leave it at that. <laughs> well, we will find out um, in the coming months. Um, until then, I think we should leave it there with the promise that we will do. Uh, I think we're hoping to do. Uh, it's been a drought of experts and uh, guests as of late. Yeah, it's easier to do it when we can just all be in the same room. We need to figure out how now. to direct so people to. But yeah, I have one thing I, I did. We were talking about this the other day, and one thing I, I did posit was that people now have better recording equipment than that's they not did. true on that, that's no? not true okay the number of people okay. like well, i was hopeful this, this is actually one thing like i've seen like ministers with like fancy lighting setups so they look good on camera uh, but, but like the you. number of like ministers or executives broadly and private and public sector who have not just invested in like a 90 dollar microphone um to sound good is just stunningly low um but here we are or the number of people using dumb light up headsets with little green tips on them yeah <laughs> appalling <laughs> very personal gamer, gamer headsets yes uh but yeah that will not, do it for us that today i don't love uh, you gamers i know yeah, he's, he's, he does uh that will do it for us today thank you uh once again for listening uh i think next time we record we may have some news about the show we'll see Ooh, meta, uh, meta, meta conversation incoming indeed uh but yeah thanks this everyone this is rooted and, in uh, laurent wanting to change the logo and you tell him that i did a fine job when i designed <laughs> that logo we'll put a and Twitter you poll leave it alone that. okay you can follow us at short pants pod you can email us at short at gmail.com with all of your questions comments and gripes uh and until next time you can message me on instagram bye. which some of you have i need to make that private <laughs> Bye-bye. <gasps>